Hello and welcome everybody. I'm Stan Crook, uh, um, founder, chairman, and CEO of Enlorm, and your host uh, on the Enlorm podcast series. The Enlorm podcast series focuses on um, p- uh, patients with extremely rare mutations that cause severe diseases. And today I'm thrilled to have as our as our special guest, Chip Wilson. I know all the ladies in, in, in the world will be anxious to hear what Chip has to say about his apparel and all that. Uh, so Chip, welcome. Well, thanks, Dan. Nice to be here. Love to talk to you. Well, you're going to get a chance. How about that? <laughs> so uh, uh, I guess what I, I, I reading some of the things that you've written, I was intrigued first by uh, your decision to read the top 100 books. I wonder how you decided what the top 100 books were and uh, you, and being able to travel and, and you're being the, the best read wealthy 17 year old traveled uh, 17 year old. I'd like to just hear a little more explanation of that to begin with. <laughs> sure, Stan. I well, first off, my um, father remarried a stewardess with Air Canada when I was 14 years old. So I got five free trips anywhere in the world, uh, starting at that age. Um, I did not have any money, so I couldn't really take advantage of it, you know, once I got somewhere. Mm-hmm. So just by perchance, I was in an airport one day and a friend of mine, uh, of mine the mother, uh, uh, said she was going up to Alaska to, because her husband had got a uh, one of the five contracts to do the largest free enterprise project in the world, which was the Alaska oil pipeline at the time. And she said, too bad you're not American. I could get you a job up there. And I said, well, I'm from San Diego originally. And yes, I am American. And so one thing led to another. And I'm 17 years old after a couple of years university. And I'm in um, Alaska. And I'm basically the highest paid uh, laborer in the world. Um, one, because I probably worked there the longest of anybody, about 18, 19 months. Um, I only took a week off and holidays the whole time. I was working 18 hours a day, or, or that's what showed up on my paycheck, and seven days a week. And and uh, of course, I'm in the middle of um, you know, there's no girls, there's no there's no entertainment. Sounds like a bad so, idea. You know, and there's lots of drugs on the pipeline. You know, there's you know, High Times Magazine had its own section for the last oil pipeline, and. Uh, but I could see, you know, this uh, group of older men who were decrepit and their lives weren't working for them and they were in the drugs and alcohol and they were divorced. And boy, what a what a wake up call it was for me. And so, um, you know, my mother, being as wonderful as she is, sent me this article by um, in The New York Times, and it was the top 100 books of all time. So. I decided, well, I'll, you know, she sent me a few of them and I started reading them. And I I had these types of jobs where it was super intense for maybe 10 or 15 minutes at a time. And then maybe four hours would go by till I had to do something else. So, so I took that up reading and, um, and I found, I just had a real love for it. And, uh, and so I went through the top 100 books at that time. I have to admit, I didn't read Ulysses, which is the number one book of all time and never have. And so it's a big gap in all that. Um, and then um, at the end of 18 months, I had what is in today's dollars is probably an 18 and a half, 19 year old, you know, $750,000. And I coming from nothing. I mean, I say this thing like I was the wealthiest, like 18 year old in the world. I, I mean, I'm not a trust fund baby or anything. So that was big money for me. Oh, yeah. And and that must have been fascinating to be up there uh, 18 months in, in a row through the winter and everything else. Uh, <laughs> you should have, uh, you could have socked away a half, three quarters of a million dollars and, and you did. So there's not much to spend it on when you're on a pipeline, I suppose, other than drugs. Well, yeah, it's beautiful because, you know, they pay for the room and board food and, and you know, so it's, 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 it's a good way for a young person to sock money away if they can keep off the drugs. Mm-hmm. So then you end up with a three quarters of a million dollars. Did, did you immediately then start being an entrepreneur? And, you know, I know you founded a company or two before before you founded Lululemon. How did that work? Um, well, I, I bought a house and I think with three suites in it. So I think that was the beginning of being an entrepreneur and learning cash flow and and that type of thing. Um, I I was a competitive swimmer when I was young and 
uh, as anyone knows in competitive swimming, which is different than a lot of other sports, is that there's 10 and under, then there's an age group 11 and 12, then there's an age group 13, 14. So the minute you move into it uh, at the end of your age before you move into another one, you know, there's a very clear goal there. And it's like, what is the Canadian or world record? And then um, and then there's a specific date you have to do it by, and that's your birthday. So goals, uh, the psychology behind goals, if there's a if it's quantifiable with a by win date, then the subconscious mind takes it in. So I think this was already ingrained in my in my brain. And sitting in Alaska, and as I was piling up money, I was going, well, you know, like the opportunities for me started to open up more and more. And so I had set my own personal goals to own my own house by 20, um, to be in my own business by 30, and to be retired by 40. Meaning retired, meaning I was doing exactly what I wanted to do every day. Uh, and it sounds like you you just about achieved it. You had a house when you were 17 or 18. Right. You were finishing your BA in economics, if I understand it correctly. Correct. And and then you founded your first uh, company. Uh, when, when was that? I was 25, and it was... Uh, you know, again, being from California, but living in Canada, I brought the surf skate snowboard business to Canada. Well, actually, the snowboard business is something I think we brought to the US, but that was that's a different story. But I got into all three of those uh, probably seven years before anybody else. So I saw, as you probably have seen in the in the drug business, there's people that get into things early, and it's there's a lot of expense. But if you can take advantage of that, you know, you're there before anybody else. And uh, before the multitudes of com competitors come into a market um, and seeing the flow of like going from three companies to 500 companies down to three companies over a seven-year curve was highly educational for me. I'll bet. And then that set you up to do Lululemon. And I, I, I would guess that Lululemon was the first and sort of the fancier uh, better, better made exercise stuff that qual that also can be used as sort of clothes for leisure and that sort of thing. Well, I'd never, I'd never really, I understood the whole uh, leisure thing. I think it's really, it's uh, uh, seeing these trends out of surf, skate and snowboarding where sports ended up transitioning their clothing into, into everyday life. And that's what New York times calls athleisure. I'd say that's, Mm -hmm. one of the lamest words I've ever heard in my life. And it's only because they were 15, 20 years behind the trend. They just had to come up with something. I call it more like street technical. And so, um, um, yeah, so, you know, that uh, first off, you got to solve a problem for the athlete. And that was um, women. One, nobody was making really good athletic clothing for women. As a matter of fact, it didn't exist. Everything was being done by men. All sports stores were by men, all sports clothing by men who knew nothing about how women dress, buy, operate in any kind of level. And uh, I had quite an opportunity through my last days in snowboarding to make uh, apparel for women. Uh, young girls, actually, it was the first time they kind of came into extreme sports in the middle 90s. And so I got an education probably no other male probably had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you started Lululemon, uh, what was your dream? Uh, I, I'm assuming that its success uh, uh, outran your ability to dream it. But uh... <laughs> Well, it, after working 18 years at my company, West Beach Snowboard, it and not really making very much money after 18 years, I made a million dollars, which if you spread that over 18 years, isn't very much. And I'd blown all my $750,000 at the Alaska oil, <laughs> I made on the Alaska oil pipeline. So um, um, I, I forget the question, Stan, but basically I had to, I had started at zero and um, had to work my way up. And I'm sorry, ask me the question again. I, I lost. <laughs> okay. Did you expect Lululemon to be, the oh. extraordinary financial success that it's been for you. Well, I, I definitely saw what happened in surf skate snowboarding, and I knew I was the first person to yoga. I had no idea how, no one had any idea how yoga, big yoga would be, but I could kind of see that trend. Um, but my sole goal after working all those hours and 18 hours a day for that 18 years was, you know, to open up one store and to ride my beach cruiser to work every day and wear my shorts and flip flops and a t-shirt and, you know, and work out, you know, work out two to three hours a day. 
the the problem was is that it became so damn successful that I knew if we didn't grow, then Nike or Adidas or somebody at the time would figure it out and probably replicate it. But it was also a matter of we had maybe um, 12 to 13 people that were amazing young women and maybe a couple of men who, you know, they wanted to have families and have mortgages and send their kids to good schools. And if I didn't supply something to them, you know, and show them a future, then you know, then, then I probably wasn't doing my best for them. So that's really what instigated the whole, the whole growth. Yeah. So delivering for the people who invest in you. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I always think it's a great thing to give without expectation of return. And I never, you know, at the age of 42, when I started Lululemon, I really didn't need anything else in my life. I mean, I was happy, you know, making, you know, 70, $80,000 a year, I could always go get a a job at Starbucks as a barista, you know, I had a couple young kids who, um, um, you know, who I could just barely survive to feed and everything. But you know, it's not like I, I stressed about that. My problem is, is when I married my main designer, and we had three kids under the age of two, and then I really had, you know what, a man's responsibility is a man's responsibility. <laughs> kids had to get fed, and the mortgage had to get paid. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think you and I share a good many things in common, and I want to try to come to several of them, including culture as a strategic asset mm. and um, something I believe in deeply. Yeah. And uh, But we've got a lot of other things to get to before then. So you started Lululemon with the hope that you you, you might have to work a little bit, but suddenly it's success and, and your burgeoning family required that it be a big success. And then it came to be a big success. And I asked my wife why she likes Lululemon so well. And she said, well, they're well-made and they're stylish. Uh, did Was that your goal to make them well-made and stylish? Or did you just want to make good stuff that women athletes could use? My experience in at West Beach is I sent them a, you know, a couple million dollars worth of snowboard clothing one year. And um, I went over and talked to them about six months later, and they told me that they'd burned 20% of everything we sent them. Because, you know, there would be just a thread off or, you know, something would be just not absolutely perfect. And Japanese have a whole different version of what um, quality is. So mm -hmm. I really learned quality through the eyes of the Japanese. Mm -hmm. So I took that into into Lululemon, of course. The second thing is because I traveled so much after I actually got money from my Alaska oil pipeline, I'd seen the world at, at an era when the world wasn't global. And I got to see how each and every country, every city um, was so distinct and had a different culture, a different vibe, a different way of dressing, a different way of being. And what I really noticed about Italy is that people were not very athletic. They were even the an older, you know, overweight person could look amazing in Italian clothing because it was so well cut and designed. So um, my initial focus at Lou Lemon then was to put this amazing Italian um, design ethics towards a West Coast, highly um, functional fabrics and functional way of dressing. So as you might know, back in the 80s and 90s, we were famous for good fabrics, but boy, did we look ugly. <laughs> uh, I think I was quite handsome. I speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'm generalizing and I'm working oh, on the uh, I'm, the, I'm the exception that proves the rule. I, I got it. Well, uh, and to those who were, were felt that they were beautiful in the 80s and 90s, we we humbly apologize for the, for the generalization. <laughs> I was talking about the clothing. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that's good. Uh, and and so that took off, and and you did extremely well. And then um, I think what was it, twenty thirteen? You you had a disagreement with your board. Is is that what happened? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I, it was my fault. I didn't need to go public. I didn't need private equity. But I, you know, I had again three kids under the age of two in 2005 or so. So you know, I decided I wanted to focus in on that. And I, you know, I just wasn't smart enough to get the right legal team beside me, and so I lost control of the board, which was okay. I, we had a good board, but you know, as with everything, you know, people want power, and. Um, 
Um, and, you know, I'm a creative brand product person. And to have people on a board, usually you need um, three committees, audit, governance, and uh, um, compensation. And these don't, and that's, so that's nine people right there. And how many people can you have on a board? So let's say with me, there's 10 people on a board. And my job as a, the creative founder is to kind of look five, 10 years out and going, we've got to position the company to be where it's going to be, where that, when in Canada, we call it, you know, you've got to be where the puck is going, not, you know, not where it's being shot from. So very big disagreement on where the company should go, how it should be run, what kind of leader we needed. And, um, and it was just like not a life worth living for me to be in a, in a group of people like that, who, you know, they were trying to save the money that we'd made and I was trying to make it. Mm -hmm. So um, how did it feel? I mean, you, you founded a company, you, you created the board and then you lost it. Yeah, I mean, I walked out of the board eventually. It's not like I lost it. I mean, I made the choice to leave, but I just didn't have, you know, there's a time and place in life where you kind of go, is this the life I want to live? Mm -hmm. And um, and I knew I had lots of options in life. And, um, and so, and I, I can't tell you how actually looking back at it, how wonderful the decision was, because I really got to focus in on family. And at the end of the day, I think it's all about, you know, the relationship I have with my family. And um, and so I think I've been highly successful in that route. That's great. Um, well, you know, entrepreneurs and people who create are often held hostage to people who inherit. And it just happens uh, in various ways in various places. I want to move to um, books. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, I am very much a book person like you, and I can identify a, a number of books that were um, of fundamental importance in shaping who I am. And you listed three books that I know, um, two Ayn Rand, uh, and then, and then uh, Catch-22. So let's start with Catch-22. Right. Uh, I think of Yossarian as sort of the, prototypical anti-hero type guy who's trapped in an insane situation where, you know, they're getting in bombers. They know that the odds of death increase, you know, that, that 25 missions and they're not going to be, they're not going to be alive. And so dealing with an insane situation and, and wrestling with himself and how he does it. And so what, 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 what did catch 22 do for you? Well, I think these are, it's a group of 18 year olds in World War II who, you're right, they're flying bombing missions and they know they're going to die. It's just a matter of is it tomorrow or is it like two weeks from now or is it a month from now? Um, and so, what I really got from it is um, um, like thinking about the end of my life coming really quickly, like rather than it being 90 or 126, like it's going to happen three weeks from now. And I really got that the focus of the book was like how to live life as though death is going to happen like it could happen walking across the street later today. So how am I living life? How does time, what's the time continuum? Mm -hmm. You know, like if you're sitting in physics 20, you know, as I was as I, you know, in grade 11, and that one hour class seemed to last for about two weeks you know, where I could be in a phys ed class, which would last for about eight seconds, you know, like is the goal of my life to bore the hell out of myself so that my life seems longer or to be in that phys ed class where it lasts for about uh, a year and a half and then I die. I don't know, but it's a good philosophical question. <laughs> no, I think you do know. I think you made the choice, but, and I know I made the choice. So um, I don't, did you read, uh, Heller didn't write another book for a very long time. <laughs> and then he wrote something happened. Yes. Did you happen to read that book? Cause it's, it's a very interesting for me, comparison to catch 22. Yeah. Yeah. I did read it and I, it was good, but the problem is, is catch 22, I think is the seventh most, most read book in the world. And it, it's, it's like, you've 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 done utopia and then trying to replicate utopia is so difficult mm -hmm. and um 
and of course the expectations were so high in it and probably if catch 22 hadn't been written it would have been a great book but I, but next to catch 22 there's no comparison yeah you know i had a somewhat different reaction um i felt that i actually felt a little more in catch in in something happened hmm. uh because um it is a mature person who's protecting his family and and his son who and and I felt that it was um now a, a mature sort of Yosarian trying to deal with a mature life and and a seminal failure and I, I found it very very moving but um well Stan uh, I'm going to go back and read it then because I'm sure it, it came out and I read it and you know anyway we I said what I had to say I will read it again uh, so let's talk about literary heroes um uh, Kazantzakis great Zorba the Greek how do you feel about him um I, I don't know I have to say that I don't know if 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 you're interested in great stories and great heroes I think uh uh you know that book is Kazantzakis' great book, and okay. and um, and 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 the main character Zorba makes a statement that I think you'll admire. He says, "How oh, damn it, boss! Sometimes you just got to be a little crazy." <laughs> so you recommend it to you, uh, um, and then you know it's been decades since I ran I read uh, Fountainhead and and. Um, and um, Atlas Shrug. Uh, Atlas Shrug. But as I recall, I mean, it was a, a, a sort of a an ode to individualism and, uh, you know, a, a statement of support for, uh, I guess, enlightened self-interest. Um, and of course, she was very uh, negative about altruism in any in any form. And and yet I know that you have um, been a great phila uh, philanthropist. And so I, I'm uh, wondering what 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 she taught you that was really important to you. Well, of course, when I'm 18 years old and I read it, I, I have no idea what's going on in in you know what you know the Tea Party or liberalization or whatever. I, I'm just an 18 year old reading it, mm -hmm. and then I, and really not living in the U.S., I actually didn't know anything about about the how people looked at the philosophy I had no idea it was the university courses in it that type of thing so reading it again at 52 and understanding how man that really affected my life and how I ran my businesses and how to make the best product in the in I could possibly do and not listen to people that say I can't do things and to treat people incredibly well, to be able to run the company in a way that I can grow it. And you can only do that through great people. So I think that's what, what drove me from the book. I didn't really, I didn't really connect in any kind of way that my philanthropy would be, you know, at, at odds with it. I don't really think of it that way. I think more of a, of I'm now in a position in life where I'm trying to make things work for my great, 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 grandchildren and I go well what can I do to make the world work for them and it's impossible to make it work for them without having it work for everybody so I go just a, yeah. a, an extension of enlightened self-interest as it were yeah I guess I guess that would be the way to put it that's right uh-huh uh, uh you know that's sort of the answer I expected and um uh, so I could we could spend a lot of time talking about books that matter to me and 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 to you, uh, but you also are reading biographies, uh, and um, um, is there a is there a particular biography that matters to you a lot? Well, um, holy smokes! I mean, I you know I basically again googled the top one hundred biographies of all time and went through them and. You know, I, I, I didn't find there was a whole lot that I didn't know. I think, you know, but 
it's kind of the background of the, the deals that would have got made or how people approach things, you know, maybe Bob Iger from Disney, um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I thought was a fascinating one. Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of going back to uh, the original wealthy uh, individuals in the early 1900s, you know, the Rockefellers and the, the you know, the, the big Americans that made, you know, money on the industry. I, I think the, you know, creating monopolies and how to protect the monopolies, I thought was fascinating. Um, you know, my, uh, again, my, one of my heroes would be Muhammad Ali. So, you know, I kind of read everything about them just because of, you know, his ability as a human being of, of integrity and making a stand, you know, for something, you know, to be actually having a stand that's bigger than the government, I thought was very, very brave. And uh, uh, I really admire um, and he paid for it dearly. He had to go to jail at at the at at his prime in his sport. It's really fascinating, isn't it? Like, and you know, so did Nelson Mandela for that matter. And you know, you come out the other end, and you kind of go, well, if if in life I made a difference to billions of people in life, then those two actions and spending a little time in prison, not not Mandela, not a little bit of time in prison, but spending time in prison really changed the world. Yeah. It absolutely did, as did Muhammad Ali in a very different way, and 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 we're still witnessing the process that will lead to some outcome. Uh, who yeah. knows exactly? Uh, some days I'm optimistic, and some days I'm less optimistic. But if you look at the grand sweep of history, it has marched a bit toward fairness and decency to all. Uh, I think uh, if you look on the sort of the long axis. If you look day to day, sometimes you can get very uh, upset about what's going on, I suppose. But life has never been better. And exactly I think exactly right. The news is set up for negative. But if you look at the world, you know, billion people out of poverty and uh, people living longer, they're healthier. There's nothing but opportunity. There's food, there's entertainment, there's anything you want. And if you want to make something of your life, you can. There's never been a better time. It's absolutely amazing. And it's become, a, um, I mean, there's still tremendous unfairness and that there, there's no such thing as equal, but it's gotten to the place that it's a fairer world than it was a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or 200 years ago even. Yeah, and I don't know if it's genetics. I mean, I don't know where you came from, Stan. I came from nothing and, you know, was able to, you know, but I did have an education and I had the opportunity to to take advantage of that education. I think that's the big equalizer. And as 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 we can make, you know, give that to more people, then I think that then it's really up to the individual to decide whether they want to take advantage of it or not. Well, I I I I agree with that. Uh, of course, I think, like every simple statement, it's infinitely more complex than the simple. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but you know, uh, in in general, I think absolutely. So your heroes, uh, you you focus on athletes, and of course, you were a, a, a swimmer. But what is it about athletes that you find um, so admirable and compelling? Hmm. And I, I don't know if it's as particularly athletes, but I, I kind of get where you're going. I mean, being an athlete, I could probably see it. Um, you know, I wouldn't have known a thing about the running back for for Houston, for Houston at the time, Merle Campbell, but I just watched him. You know, He's amazing. And I guess from I'm, a, I'm in between Europe and the United States being in Canada. And what I've always loved is people that did quality work and never bragged about themselves. I mean, Muhammad Ali did, but it was a marketing tool. It wasn't, you know, I don't think he needed to brag, but, you know, Earl, someone like Earl Campbell was just like, he got the job done in a way that I've never seen someone get a job done before. And um, I even look at Jimi Hendrix, uh, you know, like he, he just wanted to do his, his craft and he didn't want to get involved in you know, the, the racial stuff that was going on and he wouldn't get dragged into it in a way that, that, you know, they were going to use him as an icon for that type of thing. So he had his, I, I guess what it is, is I, I love people that have integrity and in whatever it is they want to stand for. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you know, same for Winston Churchill. Um, and so um, from an, 
you know, I, I think for me growing up in Mark Spitz, you know, in the Olympics was, you know, a big, you know, quite a, I mean, I, I have to say, I, but because my, um, my girlfriend's brother was um, roommates with him at, in Indiana state. I think it was at the time that when we, the Canadian American dual meet was in Edmonton, which is where the hometown from George Smith was, it's a family of 13 people with five people that went to the Olympics. Well, we all the boys slept in the basement, all the girls slept up on the second floor, and there was not enough room. So it was me and Mark Spitz in the same bed. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> so that's my claim to fame, actually. Uh, well, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> at least you weren't in the same bed. We, we'll stop. We'll leave it there. <laughs> I, I think well enough uh, is is just right. Uh, but, it, you know, I, as I listen to you, to my mind, what you admire is first integrity and second craftsmanship. And what you learned out of Japan is a commitment to craftsmanship, among other things. Does that does that ring true to you? Yeah, I think the other thing is that falls into that is from being a competitive swimmer, you know, you have to in an age group, you have to work two years as hard as you possibly can for about one month before you turn, you know, to a different age that that's the goal to beat that record. So I think it's it's delayed gratification, working hard for delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. Having having a goal, having the integrity and the work ethic and craftsmanship to 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 try. Thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's talk about dreams. Ah. Um, as I've come to understand myself and my dotage, I realize that I've, in my life, just been a dream merchant. That's all I've done. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you could, there's a lot of different ways you could look at Lululemon. But one way to look at it is it was a dream and a plan and a, and a galvanic person who came together and built Lululemon. Uh, um, would would you describe yourself uh, as a dream merchant? I'd say I'm a person that has a vision of the future and feels very, very uncomfortable not not determining whether that whether the my vision of the future is right. Mm -hmm. So I have these like, uh, triangulizations of, of many, many ideas and thoughts that all seem to come together at one point and go, oh my God, in five years from now, this is going to happen. And if I just sat there and took no action on it, it would drive me crazy. So I think it's more inside of that. Yeah. So control of the future um, and the desire to have a future that that you want to have, not Im as imposed by somebody else. Yeah, a leader is a person that creates a future that would otherwise not have occurred. That's also called a dreamer. <laughs> uh, but the difference between a dreamer who does nothing and a dreamer who does everything is a plan and the ability to enlist others in your dream, right? Uh, right. And so uh, very, very interesting. And um, uh, to just paraphrase what you say, uh, I think uh, you consider culture as a possible strategic advantage for an organization. Is that a fair way to describe how you feel? Yeah, I would say I fell into it accidentally and that I had some, in my 18 years at West Beach, I had some exposure to culture and what worked and what didn't. It was a great, it was a great uh, template for me to, to look at that. And so what was wonderful is that when I, I sold and I got to start Lou Lemon on my own terms. I didn't have partners. I didn't need money. I could do it on how I wanted to do it. And my number one thing, I just wanted to go to work with incredible people. Mm -hmm. And I, in order to be responsible in life, you know, I had, I had to make that happen. I just couldn't dream about it. So I, I decided to take the best of what I could see in culture which was the book, um, you know, um, Good to Great by Collins, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, 
the um, psychology of achievement and the goal setting part of it by Brian Tracy is another San Diego boy. And, um, and then the landmark form, which really taught me about integrity, responsibility. Um, and I created a linguistic abstraction, I call it. So it's like two surgeons working on a knee or a heart. They can't be like explaining a whole bunch of stuff. Like a word has to mean a whole bunch of things. So in business, I think it's the same thing. You create a ling we created a linguistic abstraction of 30 terms and definitions of which everybody knew about. And we could communicate someone in Vancouver could communicate with someone in Beijing or Munich and it would and everyone was on the same page. Mm -hmm. And if um, at its best at Lululemon, how, how if you had to put into two or three sentences, what made the culture special? What, what would you say? Um, people became responsible for what they said they were going to do so ownership and craftsmanship and a commitment to achieving the goals agreed right we were a goal setting operation mm -hmm. and quantifiable with buy win dates that was based in the very distinct knowledge of those four um courses or books that i had set out mm -hmm. You may not enjoy it. You may enjoy this. You know what I, I, I've taught? Do you think leadership can be taught? That's the first question. I do. I What I think the mistake is, is that there's 10 billion leadership books out there, and there's no distinct leadership trait in for every situation. And I think leaders get caught up in that um, I have a way of being a leader and it and it works some of the time and doesn't work in others. And the true test of a leader is being able to change their leadership style in each and every situation. Couldn't agree more. Just as an aside, you want to I'll tell you what I've used over the years to teach leadership. Uh, the, the first is uh, Apollo 13, the movie. Yeah. I watch it. It it. It it is really just about great leadership, and it's a marvelous story. And then certain scenes in the movie Lincoln. Um, I'm a, a Lincolnophile, and there Daniel Day, Daniel Day Lewis felt like I got to meet Abe Lincoln. Mm. Um, so I don't even bother with books. I, I just parse those movies for people, and and focus on all the different styles of leadership that work and what doesn't and you know it's it's more fun for me <laughs> anyway i think you have you know you have crisis leaders you have peace leaders you have i i think from a book point of view i think shackleton you know in in oh, uh, yeah. in, you know was was unbelievable endurance is the book um and so I, I think there are Winston Churchill i think again in a, as a crisis being in a war and how to lead people was phenomenal yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more, and I certainly agree with some of the folks that you've picked. Well, let's move on and talk about FSHD. Sure. Why don't uh, well first what wh what is FSHD? Fascular scapular muscular dystrophy, which is a means nothing because I, uh, when I was diagnosed with it when I was thirty two years old, I. Um, I thought, oh, well, that's no problem. I mean, I can live, you know, if it's my scapular in my face, you know, kind of goes, that's fine. But uh, in fact, my face hasn't gone, my scapular is gone, and it's gone to other parts of the body, and it will take over. It's a, it's a, it's a muscle wasting disease, I guess you could call it in, to a great extent, the muscle turns into fibrous fat. So there's a, a as far as I can understand it, there's a molecule called Dux4, which, and I'm going to theorize, and I'm not a scientist, that when when we're just an egg and a sperm and they kind of come together, the first couple of times we replicate, it occurs to me the body wants the Dux4 to be in there so, so the so the body can focus in on the brain and the stem cell, or the stem cord, I would imagine, and it doesn't want muscle to be built. But then after a very short amount of time, you know, it it that goes away and muscle starts getting built. But on some people, as they age, then it's possibly epigenetics, it's possibly genetics, 
um, this dux4 starts eating up uh, muscle yeah. and so that's that's the disease yeah and and that and and that process is called silencing and it's it, it's now well understood what is supposed to happen not so well understood what why it doesn't happen and how to address it but but of course you're an athlete you're an energetic guy you're making athletic sportswear you're, you're it, of all the possible sort of calamities to befall you losing your muscle had to be somewhere near the top of your list i would guess that many things worse of course how what did what how did you react to it and what how much benefit have you gotten out of what's happened to you as well as just the harm you know as you talk of course i think about muhammad ali getting parkinson's you yeah. know and but um you know what people have said to me because well in 19 well when i was 28 i did the iron man and then two years later i can't even swim across a swimming pool and i just recognized and then i of course i found out i had no triceps so you know they just kind of went on me the thing about being a what i'd call a high level athlete which is tough to say as a 60 year old eight year old now and of course i still think i'm 18 year old like like most delusional people but um you know i I was so in tune with my body that I could understand the slightest difference and the slightest nuance in how I was changing. So I think that's, I probably have um, a, a higher degree of, of sensitivity around how my body has been changing. But I'm also highly positive person in every kind of way. And I have been able to morph and morph through, you know, through my my lifetime. I was always hoping that I would be able to walk into my older age, but that's becoming quite an issue now. I haven't got a right hamstring or a left tibia. And so that's becoming quite a quite a problem with me. But, you know, what's left? Well, I keep figuring it out, you know, and if it comes down to crawling down the hallway, you know, 100 times when I'm 90 years old, then that's the kind of guy I'll be. Uh, I have to keep myself moving. I have to keep my heart going I because this is what makes my brain work. Mm -hmm. um, it, so you responded to it like you respond to life, <laughs> which is not surprising, right? Um, okay, it's just something that I have to live with, but I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to go on and, and do the things I can do for as long as I can do them, right? Correct. Correct. Um, what about your dark days? You know, like I can walk maybe a couple of blocks and I'm just like, everything hurts. And I, um, and I go, God, I'm getting old. And then I go, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> and, but you know, um, I just do what I can that day. And then I, even if I just spend an hour just stretching and, because usually what's happened is I've overdone it the day before um, my, my, you know, like I have one right low back muscle, but not the other right low left low back muscle. So one takes over and it, you know, you'd think I have a bad back, but no, it's just like I've, I've overdone it and I need to, and I can't help myself because I'm a built in athlete. And it's like this love for endorphins and pushing my body to the limit is so ingrained in me. And yet it could be that very pushing of it and breaking down the muscle as I'm working out that's actually having my disease maybe, you know, um, go, you know, move in a faster rate or, you know, is by having the muscle being engaged and having the blood and the nerves working, allowing me to have some kind of foundation. So if a cure is made, I have those connections there and ready to go. These are things that go through my mind when those dark days occur. Yeah, and and the unknowns of what what what's the right thing to do, and the unknowns of what what and when the outcome, and all of that. And but you you just you took your family to Kilimanjaro earlier, sure. right? So did you did you climb that? Well, we did it in March of this year 2023 in january of this year i had to stop climbing mountains which was my last kind of like you know big way of exercising and i just couldn't do it anymore my left 
my left lower back was just it was too much but we'd had this thing booked for like a year and so we went and um i think the difficulty is not just like my own body and my own limitations of my body but the way it's set up to, to you have to get up at midnight or 11 a 11 p.m and you haven't really slept for four hours because you're at such a high altitude so you've already been up you know for 18 hours and then you're starting one of the biggest physical um uh you know ventures of my life in an in an altitude where there's no oxygen to get to the muscles to repair them and i and i i had this kind of joke that i think if i had a knife with me seven eighths of the way up i would have slit my throat thank <laughs> god i didn't and i got to the top and um you know we took the pictures with the family and then i had to have two um two of my guides hold each one of my elbows and basically drag me down to the mountain to an altitude which I could recover and it definitely I mean I've done the Ironman I've done some incredible climbs in my life and that was definitely I'd say the hardest thing I've ever done in my life I had to overcome many many uh, issues to get it done but at the end of the day I did it with my family and it was a it was a hell of an experience we have a shared experience in that and I don't would never have after it's over, I would never have given it up. Well, that's incredible that uh, a man with the muscle situation that you have could do that. I've, again, it just speaks to an iron will, an iron yeah. will. Yeah, not not being very smart. I bet that <laughs> that's iron another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it helps be stupid sometimes, that's for sure. <laughs> and and uh, I know uh, my wife would never have let me do that when I'm perfectly healthy. You know, <laughs> the, thing, the things I'm not allowed to do. Well, I won't talk about that, but uh, I'm pleased that your family would let you do it anyway. That's so, you know, a lot of the folks who listen to these things um, have terrible illnesses. Terrible. Don't have terrible illnesses. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. Um, yeah. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we all are. But is there, out of your experience, something that that you, you might say to our listeners that would help them get through today? Well, I'm fascinated by epigenetics. And I often wonder if the onset of my muscular dystrophy occurred at the age of 27 in a, in a, in a much quicker way because... My business kind of went under. I was under a lot of stress. The girl I was in love with left me. You know, like that creates an incredible amount of stress. And if I look at that year and a half period, um, you know, I wonder what happened to my body and then what was occurring. So I think about epigenetics and I go, you know, like what is there if if the body can turn on or can speed up a, a disease, what mentally can I do? What what physically can I do from the way I eat and run my life and basically how I think? Can I in any way reverse it or slow it? So I'd say the, the minute I start to feel, oh, like I'm sorry for myself or, you know, or I have those dark days that you were saying where I know I'm declining in a at a fast rate, I just, it's out of survival. I just don't let it get to me. And I just, I know that I have the right and the ability to choose in my mind how I am thinking at any moment. And I think that's, if I could pass anything on to people, it, what, what is it? Maslow's the gentleman that was in the, the uh, Auschwitz and the camp there that wrote the phenomenal book about just being in choice. Mm -hmm. You know, the Nazis could do anything to him, but they couldn't take his by way, his ability to think and choose at who he was going to be each and every moment of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I think people will appreciate that perspective. It is a matter of controlling the environment by controlling yourself and 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 willing yourself to be a positive person. You founded uh, Solve FHD, um, and you've invested probably a hundred million dollars in it or so. Correct. Um, what what do you I know the goal is to find a treatment or a cure. Uh, how, how do you think it's gone? Well, <clears throat> I'm deeply involved with Peter Diamandis at the X Prize. And what Peter taught me was that 
you set up a prize, um, maybe carbon capture or going to space or something, and the amount of money you put up for the prize brings out the competitiveness in, in people. It's who we are as human beings. And it has people kind of go, oh, I can, you know, like, like I can win that prize and they'll put in 10 times the amount of money to actually win the prize. Mm -hmm. 20 million of the 100 million we are actually putting into a a prize with with Peter Diamandis and we have, you know, a group of people around the world um, uh, um, also donating. We're very close to announcing something like that, I would hope. But it's what I, I spent uh, and my friend, uh, Neil Camarda, um, who's on my board, who also is FSHD, we spent maybe six years on a on a company called Fasio on the board there out of the Netherlands. It was the only game in town for, or let's call it globally, for, that I could see for many, many years. And, um, <clears throat> but about four years ago, we decided that we were going to go out on our own. We, we, we had to expand the, the scope of where we were looking. And <clears throat> quite frankly, we just thought that things moved a lot quicker in North America than they did in Europe. Um, mm -hmm. um, so we put up the hundred million here and we made, I tried to make a big announcement out of it. Not that I, I have nothing to gain in life, nothing about my ego, nothing, but it was more like, I do have the platform to, to, to bring it out, to get the publicity and to have people that, and scientists, academics, companies that are, that were, doing something along the side, either in Duchenne's or uh, spinal muscular atrophy or something to look at FSHD and go, well, geez, if I'm doing it for these, I can do another clinical study if, alongside of this. Um, we can take care of that bottleneck to either don't grant money or put equity in or take a royalty on it somewhere where it doesn't mess up the, the cap table of the company and go, take care of bottlenecks to kind of get to the next stage. I'd say we've gone from one game in globally in four years to maybe 30. And I'm talking people doing clinical studies. I'm talking people doing, you know, hitting RNA or, or the genetics or CRISPR or, um, um, you know, um, the mitochondria. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways of going at it, but I am stunned at, at, at what's come out of the woodwork since we've announced this. Yeah, <clears throat> so real progress. And uh, you've also contributed to NWARM. Yeah, and super happy. It, it was an FSHD-focused uh, 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 effort. And, you know, um, it, we didn't succeed. Um, I think we did the right work to conclude it wasn't. And you know we're now looking at a different opportunity that is much more related to RNA uh, biology. Um, uh, I, I'm, uh, why Enlorm? Well, the focus of Solve FSHD is to take care of bottlenecks in in the world. So, one, you've done an incredible job with Ionis, and especially with SMA. So you had a lot of knowledge in it. You had a you had a a a template for how this could actually work, um, and and so you split off. I think on a as a way of giving back, Stan, and you know with incredible amount of knowledge, and it's something that could serve many many people. And you had a bottleneck, and the bottleneck was your lab. So. So our, our thing, okay, well, Stan's got a bottleneck. This is like an incredible operation and great template. Let's give him the million dollars to help set up the lab. And then that would give him the template or the foundation then when and if my DNA or genetics can ever get, we can ever find out when that particular part is, is discovered, then it gives an opportunity for Enlorum to look at that hoping that if it can solve it for me, it can solve it for many, many people. And uh, just for our listeners, the the, the money that uh, was donated went directly to equipment and, and filling out our new lab that quadruples our capacity. And and so it was a true bottleneck that, that, that you filled. Um, before I forget it, uh, speaking of prizes, 
I can't remember whether it was longitude or latitude. <laughs> That's so dumb. But uh, there was a great tiny little book called Longitude. Or, uh, uh, and there was a prize at the, uh, I don't know, 1700s or so, because nobody could, you know, there was no way to know where you were in, in the globe. And of course, it turned out to be a watchmaker who got the money, right? Yeah. All the great scientists and, you know, the Newtons and so on. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, prizes do work. And they often find people who would be very unlikely to to uh, to succeed. So uh, look for your watchmaker would be my advice. Okay. Well, and there's another great story behind that. I have to tell it. It's um, the the X Prize did something around uh, oil spills, and you know who could like come up with the idea to you know to, to do the best job in this. Well, it came out of a hairdressing salon. And they were like $30 million because they had all this hair that they were cutting every day. They put it into a mesh bag and they used it to clean their sinks up because it absorbed all the oil. It was brilliant. Brilliant. Anyway. Well, I, I, I hope I hope the prize went to the person who was cutting hair because it's you know, that's great. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Oh, John just sent me a note saying it was longitude. Oh, boy. At least I thought it was longitude. <laughs> if you haven't read that book, it's a way cool little book. But anyway, so um, I, I guess I should bring this to a, a close. And first, thank you for your generosity of your time here today. And Thank you and SolveSHD and everything for the support that you've given us. Is is there anything I haven't asked that you, you'd like me to ask or anything that I haven't given you a chance to say that you would like to say? No, I, I think that you haven't um, maybe given yourself enough accolades, Stan, you and your organization and you as a leader, um, you know, to, 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 you know, hive off and to, to do what you're doing is like a great thing for the world. And I, and inside of all this, I don't want to be, you know, this to be left that it's about me. It's about what you're doing for these many, many children, most in most cases that have these rare diseases. And again, I think that by solving things for in the rare diseases, you're probably your knowledge and your, uh, is, is, is being exponentially growing. And I think it's going to be a, a great thing for all of science and society. So thank you. Well, thank you. And, uh, um, you know, these are unique experiments of nature. You yes. are a unique experiment of nature. And and what we're learning already uh, convinces me that we will, what we're going to learn in the coming years will change basically how we think about health and disease altogether. Yes. And I'm not the first to say this, but but I've been arguing for some time that it's time we stop thinking about disease and start thinking about health and what we have an opportunity to do with these patients who have just a single variable driving their change in phenotype is really learn about how health progresses to disease. And mm. when we have benefit, we get to watch it reverse. Yes. And, and, and uh, so um, I'm just now finishing... A, a really interesting paper. In January, we did a data call for the first 170. We had 173 patients we'd processed. And I'm finishing this paper. And, you know, well, we've well, to have all this information, it doesn't exist anywhere else. And, and to, you know, be able to ask the question, if you have the same exact mutation, will you have the same exact problems? No, you don't. Uh, and here's some data to show you. So it, 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 it's going to change everything and um, your support has helped make that possible and now i just need to make it a reality that's called dream <laughs> <laughs> let's dream together <laughs> uh, uh, that is the nature of great things uh, <laughs> people dream together it's been a delight to uh, chat with you today. Uh, congratulations on an extraordinary life. And um, and thanks so much for all the support that you've given us, Chip. And with that, I'll, 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 I'll close it. And again, just thanks so much. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as NanoRare. 
many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorum comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorum or today's episode, visit enlorum.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorum.org. Search Enlorum on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. This video is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook and produced with the help of the following professionals. Thank you for watching.